The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning, Ecclesia. Would you pray with me? Creator God, we're grateful to be gathered in this space um, to join all of creation in its praise of you. And we ask, God, that you continue to work within us and mold our hearts to be the kind of people who represent you well in the world, um, who are about the things that you are about, and that, Lord, take your teaching and your movement in our lives seriously. And, Lord, we arrive here this morning just coming from so many different places and experiences with you just over the last week and the last months and maybe the last year. And we would ask, God, that you would speak to us in ways that we could see and know and understand individually, but also, Lord, as a group. And toward that end, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching, that everything said here be from you and because of you and guiding us towards you as we partner with you to bring about your preferred future for all of creation. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I thought today I would share with you... um, some of my favorite things. Here's the thing that you might not know about me. I am really into Bibles. Um, and not like the Bible, like you would want me to be, like that I read it all the time and a lot. Like that's good, but that's not what I'm talking about. I just like Bibles and like collecting Bibles and having a lot of Bibles. And I figure if I have a lot of Bibles, then someday I might just read them all the time. I haven't hit that yet, but that's where we're headed. So. I have a lot of Bibles, probably many of you do too. I think the average American household now has six Bibles uh, in their their house. Like our family is moving houses next month. So we were boxing up a uh, bookshelf yesterday and we had six Bibles just on that one bookshelf. Uh, Like Marie Kondo would be so disappointed if she came to our house, Uh, but they bring me joy. Um, So I'm keeping them all. Uh, So I thought I would share with you some of my favorite Bibles. This is not even close to all of them. Um, After we're done here, if you want to go with me back to the study, I can show you even more Bibles. So uh, this is one of, uh, they're all my favorite if you ask me, but this this is my Hebrew Bible. This is actually not the whole Bible. It's just the First Testament, and I keep this around a lot. Uh, People ask me after having gone to seminary, like which language is easier, Greek or Hebrew? And I tell them always like Hebrew for me was so much easier uh, just because of the definite article for no other reason. And if you want to have a long conversation about that, we can do that sometimes too, but that's kind of a nerdy Bible person thing to talk about. Um, But it also feels kind of cool to read from right to left instead of left to right. Another one of my favorites, this is my Greek New Testament. So if you're going to have this, you got to have this. And, and the reason, there was a time where I just carried this with me all the time, like to church and to Bible study and all those kinds of things, because it's really hard language to learn. And the only way you can really learn it, like most other languages, is just to immerse yourself 
in it. And so I would carry this around all the time, especially when we were living in California and I was a student at Fuller. And I have this distinct memory of my Greek professor from Fuller coming to hear me preach one Sunday morning. And I was walking around and I had this little Greek New Testament, the same one that we used in class. And uh, he asked me, he's an old man, just really wise, just kind of ooze wisdom all the time. And he says, um, well, Mr. Palmer, because he called us all, like, I don't know why. Um, he was like 85. He said, well, Mr. Palmer, uh, do you carry around your Greek New Testament all the time? And I said, yeah. And he says, hmm. And I asked, why? It's kind of pretentious. <laughs> As he was standing there with his Greek New Testament like that. But if you're going to study Greek and Hebrew, there's no point in studying Greek or Hebrew if you can't show off that you study Greek or Hebrew, uh, because I have a Bible that will have the Greek and Hebrew and English all there together. It's not something that's hard. If you got 15 bucks, you can show off too. Uh, what else is here? So this is, everyone know what this is? Everyone should know what this is. Uh, this is the Bible, this is the translation that we teach out of most of the time here at Ecclesia, unless we have a guest or something like that. Um, this is a project that was produced years and years ago um, by many people who worshiped here. I was part of uh, the translation project. I did uh, some of the Psalms. So if you, don't have, if you don't have a copy of The Voice, I'm pretty sure I know where you can get one. So on our downtown campus, we've got plenty of these, I think. So also, and this might be my absolute favorite, like if everything were to burn, like this is the one that I would want to keep. And this is my, the new Oxford annotated NRSV. Does anyone here own an NRSV? Okay, you went to seminary. If you own an NRSV, that's all that means. It is the seminary, this is the, this is the scholar's Bible. I bought it my first year in ministry, so it is working on 22 years. It's been everywhere with me. I'm glad I went with the um, genuine leather version because it's been pretty beat up just through travels. But if everything else were to go away, this is the one, this is the one you keep. Um, so also, now this is one of what was one of my favorites for a while. Last year or the year before, um, a scholar named David Bentley Hart came out with a new translation of the New Testament. And this is David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament. And this translation uh, started like a genuine, like translation war. It's been a long time since the church has had a good translation war. I mean, you go back to uh, King James and NIV to have a really good translation war. And th this, the, the debate over this Translation, I mean, it probably didn't fill up your news feed, but all of my friends were talking about it. Like there were podcasts and radio shows and all kinds of things about this translation. David Bentley Hartz, I used it for a long time for my morning reading. It's a good, good translation, but the reason um, it had, um, it was in an all-out translation war is because there was another New Testament translation done by this little-known theologian named N.T. Wright. And I say that because he's probably the most well-known theologian living today. And I read his New Testament like every day. It was great. 
And so he came out this last year, him and um, another theologian named John Golden Gay. John Golden Gay came out with a translation of the Old Testament, and N.T. Wright came out with a new translation of the New Testament, and they put those together in, this is very new, like three weeks old, called The Bible for Everyone, which is a marketing ploy so that you will all go buy it. So when someone says something to you, what, what translation do you use? You tell them to say, is it for everyone? But this is my favorite new translation. Uh, and so there was a lot of back and forth between the N.T. Wright crew and the David Bentley Hart crew about some things in both translations of the New Testament because people like me don't have enough to do. That's why. So... Um, yeah, that's the world that I inhabit. And when I, when I think about all of these translations and what I use and what I don't use, because there are some translations of the Bible that I won't use because they get a preposition wrong. Or like when I am preparing for a class or to teach and I don't find a translation that I think quite gets it right, like I will just go back to Hebrew or to Greek and just do my own. And when I look at all of the Bibles, like these I have here and those that are on my shelf and those we have home, at home, and I think about all the different ways that Christians have approached the Bible throughout the years, like I don't look at that and think, man, there go, there go Christians again, like majoring in minors, dealing with stuff that nobody really cares about, minutia. Like that, that's not the message I get at all. The message I get is that really good thoughtful people come into conflict over things that matter. That really good people can fight about things that matter. Um, I was actually taking Hebrew when the New Testament translation of The Voice came out. And so uh, my professor for Hebrew was also a Greek professor, and he was an attorney here in town. And I remember taking him a copy of the New Testament when the voice came out, and he opened it up and he looked to his favorite passage, um, probably somewhere in Romans, and he goes, I would have done that differently. And like that was the end of the conversation because when you spend a lot of time with languages and that sort of thing, you know like there are reasons why we fight over things that matter and that it's a good thing to have disagreements over things that matter. Because what happens usually with most people is that we land in two courts. Like one is that we will have great disagreements about things that don't really matter. Like, do you remember if you're married, do you remember what your first married fight was about? Like I've been married for 21 years. For me and Rochelle, our first married fight was about the proper way to load the dishwasher. The proper way to load the dishwasher. And I want you to know, I won that fight. <laughs> and the way that you know that I won that fight is because now, every night, I get to load the dishwasher. <laughs> so, so we know that like on one hand that we have, we have conflict over things that don't really matter. But then we have conflict the other temptation is to take things that really do matter 
and to not have conflict about them. So one of my favorite writers and homileticians is a woman named Barbara Brown Taylor, and she says that Christians are often told that they shouldn't fight, so we do it badly. And so we just kind of ignore and dismiss things that are really important that we should have disagreements about because we think that we shouldn't have a disagreement. And that's never been the case. And so if you've been around um, Ecclesia since January, like you, you'll know that we have been talking about love and what it means to love, loving people who are close to you and loving people who are far from you, what love looks like in the real world, what, how love extends itself. And we, we've talked about how love can often be transgressive and hard. But what we want to tackle, what we want to talk about this morning, is how do you lovingly handle conflict? Because all you have to do is love enough people and live long enough, and you will come into, con- you will come into conflict with people that you love. And those conflicts won't just be about things like how to load the dishwasher. It'll be about things that really matter. And and we have to push back against this idea that loving someone doesn't involve conflict. That that if we're we're in conflict, then that means that we don't love or, or we want to preserve love so we avoid conflict. And so one of the temptations that humans have is that we will have a problem in a relationship and we love the relationship more than we love the person. And so we won't address the conflict because what we're scared of is the, losing the relationship. But that's loving the relationship more than we love the person. Just listen to how Leviticus talks about this. Leviticus says this, if your neighbor is doing something wrong, correct him or else you could be held responsible for his sin. Now, you know already, like if someone in your orbit is doing something wrong and you say something about it, that's the fastest way to conflict. Right? Leviticus says, correct him. Do not seek revenge or hold a grudge against any of your people. How many of us, if someone were to really ask what we feel inside about our wife, our husband, our kids, our coworkers, whatever it is, a place of tension that maybe has been over a long period of time, the word we would really use if we were being honest is resentment. Instead, love your neighbor as you love yourself, for I am the eternal one. So very early in the story of God's people, one of the things that's put flatly on the table is that how you handle conflict demonstrates how you love. And how you embrace and approach conflict demonstrates if you love. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do when you're having conflict with your wife, your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your children, your parents? What are you going to do when you're at a point of tension with coworkers or with all of your coworkers? And what are you going to do when you're part of that community organization 
that you're trying to get some things done, but there just keeps being this conflict over and over and over again. What happens when it's time to take that trip back home and you know that there's going to be conflict because there always is. So I want to talk a little bit about what Jesus says about how to lovingly handle interpersonal conflict. And we need to be careful because this is a, this is a relatively narrow lane. What Jesus isn't talking about, Jesus is not talking about if you're in a relationship with someone and you're being abused. Like you're being physically abused or emotionally abused. You're being spiritually abused. Jesus is not talking about that. And Jesus isn't talking about if there's someone in your life that continues to introduce tension into the relationship and, and you know that there are some mental, uh, mental deficiencies or there's some mental illness going on. That's not, Jesus isn't saying this is the way to handle those kinds of situations. Jesus is talking about those everyday circumstances that just deny us of our joy, leave us feeling depleted, and rob us because we are either so afraid of entering into this conflict or we don't know how to enter into it. And even when we do, what we do is we don't turn to Jesus, we turn to other fields of meaning, like we turn to psychology or sociology, or the business world for best practices. And it's not like anything's wrong with some of those. But Jesus is saying there is a way that is rooted in who God is and who God calls you to be about how to deal with conflict. And that's the path you want to take. And it's so wise. Because what Jesus is talking about is if, if someone sins against you, but he lays out a principle here that is good for just about all conflict that you will face over the course of your life. And it's a principle that works and everybody knows it works. It's the principle that you would like for someone to demonstrate to you if you were the person being accused of something. And everyone knows that it's true, but it's really hard to do. And so Jesus in Matthew 18 is teaching stories like he often does. And he lays out a principle that will transform your relationships, the conflict and the way you handle conflict in relationships if you were to take them seriously. And it's the way that's most appreciated if you are on the other side. So I want you to imagine just for a minute the person or the group of people in your life right now where you feel the most tension and conflict. And it might be something that's very close, very recent, that happened to you, but it could also be something that maybe happened a long time ago, but you're still holding on to. Just imagine who that person is or that group of people are. And as you do that, hear these words from our Lord. Jesus says, this is what you do if one of your brothers or sisters sins against you. Go to him in private and tell him just what you perceive the wrong to be. If he listens to you, you've won a brother. Okay, so the first step, Jesus says, in dealing with these interpersonal conflicts is that you go in person, in private. Hey, can we grab a cup of coffee? I'd like to take you to lunch. Do you have a minute? I want to give you a call on the phone. Hey, can you have five minutes for me to talk to you? You go in person, in private. And I want to be really clear about this because uh, this isn't best practices from a self-help book. 
Like these are the teachings of our Lord. And Jesus says, if you're having conflict with someone, you go in person, in private. Because Jesus knows what we are tempted to do. Jesus knows that we are tempted that when we are having conflict with someone, to tell everyone else in the world besides that someone. That we will tell everyone. Did you hear what she said? Do you know what he did? Did I tell you about what happened the other day? Do you know that she did this? It seems like they're doing that over there. Like we will tell everyone in the world except that person. Like have you had the experience of someone sitting down with you? Maybe you're having coffee. Maybe you're talking after church. You're on the phone and you're texting. They're telling you everything else that somebody else did. Has it ever occurred to you like in that moment to go, oh, wow, that sounds really bad. What did they say when you talked to them? That's a conversation ender. Because we know that they have not talked to them, that they didn't go to them, that they've shared this with everybody else in the world besides them. And I don't know that this has ever been easy to do. But I think in our cultural moment, living in the 21st century, that we might have some unique challenges around this. Because it is so easy for us to talk to everyone else in the world besides a person. Like we have what more and more people are describing as a call-out culture, where someone offends you or wrongs you or does something that you don't think is right. Like you just get on Twitter, you get on Facebook, whatever social media you use, and you just tweet and retweet and subtweet. Some person is Tweedledee and you follow them up being Tweedledum. You just tell everybody in the world. It has never been easier to talk to everybody but that person or to talk about that person without mentioning that person's name. And you know that everybody else just kind of knows who you're talking about. Like that's the culture we live in. And Jesus says, no, you go in person, in private. Because what we're going to see is that everything that Jesus teaches us about this is rooted in grace, is rooted in redemption and reconciliation. We're not so much into redemption and reconciliation as a people. We're into being right and being affirmed in our righteousness as people. But Jesus isn't interested in that. Everything Jesus is interested in has to do with grace. And the reason that you go to the person who has done wrong or done wrong by you is to limit the range of accusal. Because here's something that we all need to consider is that oftentimes when we think something is going on in the world around us, someone's done something to us, whether it's near or far away, there's a word that is crucial that we never use. And that word is seems. It seems like this happened. But what we say is this happened. And the reason you want to limit the range of accusal is because you might be wrong. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one that's ever had this experience where I thought something was the case. I thought someone did something. It seemed to me like this would be natural. And it turns out I was wrong. 
Several years ago, uh, a friend of mine who pastors a church outside of Fort Worth had this little firestorm in his congregation because there, there went around phone calls and emails and letters all from one guy saying, hey, um, I saw the pastor coming out of a gentleman's club. Just let everybody know, saw the pastor coming out of the gentleman's club. Don't worry about what I was doing there. I saw the pastor coming out of a gentleman's club. And so suddenly, this is what he's got to deal with. But no one asked why. Because the truth is that both he and his wife and a small group of people from their congregation um, had met this woman who had been in the industry and she was trying to get out and they were working with her and she had a situation occur at work and she had his number and didn't know what to do so she called him for help and he responded like you would want a good friend to respond. What if you're wrong? But by then, you've already sent out the email. You've picked up the phone. You've sent the text. You've spread the rumor. What if you don't know everything that you need to know? What if it only seems that way? And that's why you go in person, in private, not just to protect the person that you're accusing, but to protect your own integrity and character. Because now you're the one, you're the one who has burdened a sister or a brother. You're the one who's falsely accused someone. You're the one who's introduced division. You're the one who has sinned against someone else. But Jesus knows what humans are like. And so you go to your brother or sister in person, in private, and they don't respond. Well, Jesus thought about that already, so he says this next. But sometimes he will not listen. And if he does not listen, go back, taking a friend or two friends with you. For as we have learned in Deuteronomy, every matter of communal import should be testified to by two or three witnesses. So Jesus says, after you've gone to the person in person, in private, you go again in person, in private. But this time, you take two or three witnesses. Now, when I was a kid and read this passage, like, I thought that meant, and I was taught, and that's what David Bentley Hart does in his translation, that's why it's part of a translation war, that you took some people just to witness that conversation. But that would make no sense if all of this is rooted in grace. Because if you come to me and you say, uh, Sean, you stole $1,000 from me. And I say, no, I didn't. Well, you come back a week later with two other people just to watch that conversation happen again. Like that doesn't help. And now you're thinking, man, Sean might really need $1,000. I'm not saying I do. I'm not saying I don't. But anyway, <laughs> like that doesn't move anything forward. What Jesus says is what has been true for all of our time as a community is that you bring two or three people with you who can testify to the facts, who know what happened, who have firsthand knowledge. And the biblical witness is really consistent. 
from Deuteronomy forward, you bring people who know what happens because Jesus is concerned that in these kind of tense conversations that everything that's said be contained to the facts. Like what's, what actually happened? Because Jesus is concerned that this conversation, that it is about an event and not about our egos. Because events either happened or they didn't. But egos are a different thing. Egos like to be right. Egos are self-righteous. Egos protect identities. Surely I am not the only person who secretly knew at one point in their life that they were wrong about something, but just kind of kept on acting like they were right about it. That's what egos do. And Jesus says, if you're going to accuse somebody of something, this has to be about facts. And yeah, that means sometimes you're going to have a strong intuition. You're going to have a wonderful hunch that you have learned to trust over a lifetime that tells you something is one way, but you're not going to have any way to verify that. And you're just going to have to live with it. Like, you know which kid ate the cookies, but you can't prove it. And you're just going to have to live with that. Put them on a higher shelf next time. Because this is about grace and redemption. That's that's why Paul says things like when a brother or sister stumbles, you restore them. When you go to restore them, you do it gently. This is why Paul says, when you accuse somebody, especially a, a church leader, that you have to have something besides your gut and rumor to go on. Because witnesses are a help to us. Witnesses keep us from launching false allegations. And witnesses keep us from spreading rumors. Witnesses keep us from story hunting and opposition research. Witnesses keep us centered on what actually happened. Jesus knows that there are going to be cases where even that won't help. There are some people who are that intransigent that it just won't matter. So then he teaches us this. Then if your brother or sister still refuses to heed, you are to share what you know with the entire church. And if your brother or sister still refuses to listen to the entire church, you are to cast out your unrepentant sibling and consider him no different from outsiders and tax collectors. Now, I want you to follow me here because I think this is funny. Jesus says that after you go in person and private and after you go and take two or three witnesses, you're supposed to tell the church, which I am almost 100% sure Jesus didn't say that way. And the reason is because when Jesus would have said it, there would not have been such a thing as a church. 
So what's happening, what the consensus in scholarship says is happening, is this is years later when Matthew's writing his gospel, him looking back and remembering what Jesus taught and saying, after you've taken two or three people, you need to share what's gone on with a relevant community of people who are committed to the gospel. And so for Jesus, and that would have been the 12 disciples maybe, or maybe a greater circle of disciples. For you, it might be something like the people in your small group. Because if if you sin against somebody and you are intransigent about it or someone else in your small group does it, there's no point in telling everybody in the church, but there's a great deal of healing and accountability in telling the people in your small group, this, this smaller group of people, that you have given permission to speak into your life, to hold you accountable to the kind of woman, the kind of man that you have proclaimed that you want to be. And so Jesus says that after that, you tell people who are close to both of you to hold you both accountable. And this is a teaching that I don't think we get if we don't understand the stories that bracket it. Because after Jesus shares this with his disciples about how to handle interpersonal conflict, Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, you know, hey, um, I heard what you said about all of that. And that sounds good. And, G- and, and Peter has what every Christian in the history of the world has. Um, he has the, yeah, I know, but what about? All of us have it. So we, we hear Jesus say something and we, we have a particular situation that we think this doesn't address so we can do what we want. And he says, um, but how many times should I forgive someone? So Peter's like, so what if I go to somebody and they're like, oh yeah, I did that. Should I just keep forgiving them? And Peter says, should I forgive them seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven, which is not an invitation to do arithmetic. Seven being the biblical number for completion or fullness. Jesus says, you forgive them as many times as it takes until it's done. But to understand this teaching, you have to know that it's about that kind of grace. Because before Jesus launches into it, he tells a story about sheep. And this is the story that he tells He says, a shepherd in charge of a hundred sheep notices that one of his sheep has gone astray. What do you think he should do? Should the shepherd leave the flock on the hills unguarded to to search for the lost sheep? God's shepherd goes to look for that one lost sheep. And when he finds her, he is happier about her return than he is about the 99 who stayed put. Your father in heaven does not want a single one of the tripped waylaid, stumbling little ones to be lost. You see, here's where Jesus and us are headed in different directions. Because when someone sins against us, we take it personally. And maybe rightly so. But when Jesus sees someone who has sinned, 
He sees a sheep that has gone astray. And what does a good shepherd do when a sheep has gone astray? They go and find it to bring it back. So this principle is really simple, but its simplicity doesn't make it easy. What to do in these moments, these chapters of interpersonal conflict? You go to them to reconcile. You go to them to reconcile. This is the Jesus approach to when you've been done wrong. You don't go to them to prove that you're right. You don't go to them to make a big stink. You don't go to them on some kind of justice crusade. You don't go to them to make them feel badly about what they did. You don't go to them so other people will know what horrible bad people they are. You go to them to reconcile. To reconcile. You love one another, Leviticus says, as God has loved you. And I know for some of us, we hear that and we think, oh man, Sean, you know, I don't like conflict. I'm not very good. And I really enjoy being passive aggressive. Matter of fact, being passive aggressive is my love language. <laughs> and that sounds really hard. Yeah, it is. But as you probably tell your children the same thing that I tell my children, you can do hard things. Jesus says you go to them to reconcile. And then later the Apostle Paul writes to all of those who are following Jesus and he says this is what, this is what Jesus has left you to do to go into our world to be ministers of reconciliation. Because we serve a Jesus whom we all have sinned against, who humbled himself, came to earth to reconcile us to God. And so what do you do? Wherever that person was, whoever that person was that you imagined or that group of people, what's your next step? You go to them to reconcile. Let me pray for you. Lord, would you embolden us to be ministers of reconciliation in all that we say and do? That we would do the hard work of loving one another the way that you have loved us. 
and God to acknowledge that sometimes the conflict and tension that we experience in life and our relationships, that those are good people who disagree about things that are very important. But you have given us a path forward, a path that is rooted in grace and love and redemption for one another. And so we ask for your spirit's power as we move forward to be your people in your place to accomplish your dreams for all the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.